0: Section 21 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA, January 2021. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident Section 21. Kennedy Space Center Landings. The original Space Shuttle Plan called for routine landings at Kennedy to minimize turnaround time and cost per flight, and to provide an efficient operation for both the shuttle system and the cargo elements. While those considerations remain important, other concerns such as the performance of the orbiter tires and brakes, and the difficulty of accurate weather prediction in Florida, have called the plan into question. When the shuttle lands at Edwards Air Force Base, California, approximately six days are added to the turnaround time compared with a landing at Kennedy. That is the time required to load the orbiter atop the shuttle carrier aircraft, a specially modified Boeing 747, and to ferry it back to Florida for processing. Returning the orbiter to Kennedy from Edwards costs not only time but also money nearly $1 million, not including the cost of additional ground support, equipment, extra security, and other support requirements. Further, the people necessary to accomplish the turnaround tasks must be drawn from the staffs at Kennedy and Vandenberg Air Force Base, California. They are the same people needed for the preparation for subsequent flights. Returning the orbiter also imposes an additional handling risk to the vehicle in both the loading operation and the ferry flight itself. Encountering light precipitation during the ferry flight has caused substantial damage to the orbiter thermal protection system. These costs and risks, however, are minimal when compared to those of a space shuttle mission. The Kennedy runway was built to space shuttle design requirements that exceeded all Federal Aviation Administration requirements and was coordinated extensively with the Air Force, Dryden Flight Research Center, NASA Headquarters, Johnson, Kennedy, Marshall, and the Army Corps of Engineers. The result is a single concrete runway 15,000 feet long and 300 feet wide. The grooved and coarse brushed surface and the high coefficient of friction provide an all-weather landing facility. The Kennedy runway easily meets the intent of most of the Air Force, Federal Aviation Administration, and International Civil Aviation Organization specification requirements. According to NASA, it was the best runway that the world knew how to build when the final design was determined in 1973. In the past several years, questions about weather predictability and shuttle systems performance have influenced the Kennedy landing issue. Experience gained in the 24 shuttle landings has raised concerns about the adequacy of the shuttle landing and rollout systems, tires, brakes, and nose wheel steering. Tires and brakes have been discussed earlier. The tires have shown excessive wear after Kennedy landings, where the rough runway is particularly hard on tires. Tire wear became a serious concern after the landing of Mission 51D at Kennedy. Spin-up wear was three cords deep, Crosswind wear, in only an 8-knot crosswind, was significant and one tire eventually failed as a result of brake lockup and skid. This excessive wear, coupled with brake failure, led NASA to schedule subsequent landings at Edwards while attempting to solve these problems. At the Commission hearing on April 3, 1986, Clifford Charlesworth, Director of Space Operations at Johnson, stated his reaction to the blown tire incident, quote, Let me say that following 51D, one of the first things I did was go talk to the then program manager, Mr. Looney, and say we don't want to try that again until we understand that, which he completely agreed with, and we launched into this nose wheel steering development, unquote. There followed minor improvements to the braking system. The nose wheel steering system was also improved so that it, rather than differential braking, could be used for directional control to reduce tire wear. These improvements were made before Mission 61C, and it was deemed safe for that mission and subsequent missions to land at Kennedy. Bad weather in Florida required that 61C land at Edwards. There were again problems with the brakes, indicating that the shuttle braking system was still suspect. Mr. Charlesworth provided this assessment to the Commission. Quote, Given the problem that has come up now with the brakes, I think that whole question still needs some more work before I would be satisfied that, yes, we should go back and try to land at the Cape. End quote. The nose wheel steering, regarded as fail-safe, might better be described as fail-passive. At worst, a single failure will cause the nose wheel to caster. Thus, a single failure in nose wheel steering, coupled with failure conditions that require its use, could result in departure from the runway. There is a long-range program to improve the nose wheel steering so that a single failure will leave the system operational. Eight flights have been launched with plans to land in Florida. Of those, three have been diverted to California because of bad weather. Moreover, it is indicative of the dynamic weather environment in Florida that twice in the program's history, flights have been waived off for one orbit to allow for weather conditions to improve enough to be acceptable for landing. Thus, even if NASA eventually were to resume routine operations at Kennedy, experience indicates the orbital will divert into Edwards more than 30 percent of the time. NASA must therefore plan to use Edwards routinely. This requires reserving six days in the post-landing processing schedule for the orbiter's ferry trip back to Florida. It also requires redundancy in the ferry aircraft. The single shuttle carrier aircraft with some one-of-a-kind support items is presently the only way to get the orbiter from California back to its launch site in Florida. Table of Landing Site Changes Mission STS-3 Wave offs 1. Reason flooding. Scheduled landing Edwards. Actual landing Northrop Strip, New Mexico. Mission STS 7. Wave offs 2. Reason rain slash ceiling. Scheduled landing Kennedy. Actual landing Edwards. Mission STS 41C. Wave offs 1. Reason rain slash ceiling. Scheduled Landing, Kennedy. Actual Landing, Edwards. Mission STS-61C. Wave Offs 5. Reason, Rain Slash Ceiling. Scheduled Landing, Kennedy. Actual Landing, Edwards. The most serious concern is not that the weather in Florida is bad, but that the atmospheric conditions are frequently unpredictable. Captain Robert Crippen testified before the commission on April 3, 1986. Quote, I don't think the astronaut office would disagree with the premise that you are much safer landing at Edwards. There are some things you could do, as was indicated, to make Kennedy better, but you're never going to overcome the weather unpredictability. End quote. Once the shuttle performs the de-orbit burn, it is going to land approximately 60 minutes later. There is no way to return to orbit, and there is no option to select another landing site. This means that the weather forecaster must analyze the landing site weather nearly one and one half hours in advance of landing and that the forecast must be accurate. Unfortunately, the Florida weather is particularly difficult to forecast at certain times of the year. In the spring and summer, thunderstorms build and dissipate quickly and unpredictably. Early morning fog also is very difficult to predict if the forecast must be made in the hour before sunrise. In contrast, the stable weather patterns at Edwards make the forecaster's job much easier. Although NASA has a conservative philosophy and applies conservative flight rules in evaluating end-of-mission weather, the decision always comes down to evaluating a weather forecast. There is a risk associated with that. If the program requirements put forecasters in the position of predicting weather when weather is unpredictable, it is only a matter of time before the crew is allowed to leave orbit and arrive in Florida to find thunderstorms or rapidly forming ground fog. Either could be disastrous. The weather at Edwards, of course, is not always acceptable for landing either. In fact, only days prior to the launch of STS-3, NASA was forced to shift the normal landing site from Edwards to Northrop Strip, New Mexico because of flooding of the Edwards lakebed. This points out the need to support fully both Kennedy and Edwards as potential end-of-mission landing sites. In summary, although there are valid programmatic reasons to land routinely at Kennedy, there are concerns that suggest that this is not wise under the present circumstances. While planned landings at Edwards carry a cost in dollars and days, the realities of weather cannot be ignored. Shuttle program officials must recognize that Edwards is a permanent, essential part of the program. The cost associated with regular scheduled landing and turnaround operations at Edwards is thus a necessary program cost. Decisions governing space shuttle operations must be consistent with the philosophy that unnecessary risks have to be eliminated. Such decisions cannot be made without a clear understanding of margins of safety in each part of the system. Unfortunately, margins of safety cannot be assured if performance characteristics are not thoroughly understood, nor can they be deduced from previous flight's success. The shuttle program cannot afford to operate outside its experience in the areas of tires, brakes, and weather with the capabilities of the system today. Pending a clear understanding of all landing and deceleration systems and a resolution of the problems encountered to date in shuttle landings, the most conservative course must be followed in order to minimize risk during this dynamic phase of flight. Shuttle Elements The Space Shuttle main engine teams at Marshall and Rocketdyne have developed engines that achieve their performance goals and have performed extremely well. Nevertheless, The main engines continue to be highly complex and critical components of the shuttle that involve an element of risk principally because important components of the engines degrade more rapidly with flight use than anticipated. Both NASA and Rocketdyne have taken steps to contain that risk. An important aspect of the main engine program has been the extensive, quote, hot-fire ground tests. Unfortunately, the vitality of the test program has been reduced because of budgetary constraints. The ability of the engine to achieve its program design life is verified by two test engines. These fleet leader engines are test fired with sufficient frequency that they have twice as much operational experience as any flight engine. Fleet leader tests have demonstrated that most engine components have an equivalent 40 flight service life. As part of the engine test program, mayor components are inspected periodically and replaced if wear or damage warrants. Fleet leader tests have established that the low pressure fuel turbopump and the low pressure oxidizer pump have lives limited to the equivalent of twenty eight and twenty two flights, respectively. The high pressure fuel turbopump is limited to six flights before overhaul. The high-pressure oxidizer pump is limited to less than six flights. An active program of flight engine inspection and component replacement has been effectively implemented by Rocketdyne based on the results of the fleet leader engine test program. The life-limiting items on the high-pressure pumps are the turbine blades, impellers, seals, and bearings. Rocketdyne has identified cracked turbine blades in the high-pressure pumps as a primary concern. The contractor has been working to improve the pump's reliability by increasing bearing and turbine blade life and improving dynamic stability. While considerable progress has been made, the desired level of turbine blade life has not yet been achieved. A number of improvements achieved as a result of the fleet leader program are now ready for incorporation in the Space Shuttle main engines used in future flights, but have not been implemented due to fiscal constraints. Immediate implementation of these improvements would allow incorporation before the next shuttle flight. The number of engine test firings per month has decreased over the past two years, yet this test program has not yet demonstrated the limits of engine operation parameters or included tests over the full operating envelope, to show full engine capability. In addition, tests have not yet been deliberately conducted to the point of failure to determine actual engine operating margins. The orbiter has also performed well. There is, however, one serious potential failure mode related to the disconnect valves between the orbiter and the external tank. The present design includes two 17-inch diameter valves, one controlling the oxygen flow and the other hydrogen flow from the tank to the orbiter's three engines. Each of the disconnect valves has two flappers that close off the flow of the liquid hydrogen and oxygen when the external tank separates from the orbiter. An inadvertent closure by any of the four flappers during normal engine operation would cause a catastrophe due to rupture of the supply line and or tank. New designs are under study incorporating modifications to prevent inadvertent valve closures. Redesigned valves could be qualified, certified and available for use on the shuttle's next flight. While the external tank is performed flawlessly during all shuttle flights, one area of concern pertains to the indicators for the two valves which vent the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. These valves can indicate they are closed when they might be partially open. This condition is potentially hazardous, since leaks of either gaseous oxygen or hydrogen prior to launch, or in flight, could lead to fires. This could in turn lead to a catastrophic failure of the external tank. NASA is currently studying design modifications to the valve position indicators. This effort could be expedited and the redesigned indicators installed before the next flight of the shuttle. Processing and assembly. During the processing and assembly of the elements of flight 51L, various problems were seen in the Commission's review, which could bear on the safety of future flights. Structural inspections. During the 51L processing, waivers were granted on 60 of 146 required orbital structural inspections. Several of these waivers were second-time waivers of inspections. A formal structural inspection plan for the shuttle fleet had not been fully developed, and not all of the 146 inspections had been scheduled for the 51L processing. In order to minimize the flight delay until the implementation plan could be fully developed, the waivers were documented, requested, and granted by Level 2 at Johnson. The structural inspection requirements are relatively new and not completely mature. A working group was formed in December 1985 to expedite a structural inspection plan. A plan now exists for future structural inspections. The Commission believes that these inspections should not be waived. The fleet of orbiters has no counterpart anywhere in the world. There is no database relative to reusable spacecraft. The orbiter's operating environment is totally different from that of airliners and the program must closely track the effects of the orbiter's age and use. Records Throughout the Commission's review of the accident, a large number of errors were noted in the paperwork for the Space Shuttle main engine, main propulsion system, and for the orbiter. The review showed, however, that in the vast majority of cases, the problem lay in the documentation itself, and not in the work that was actually accomplished. The review led the Commission to conclude that the operations and maintenance instructions are in need of an overall review and update, and the performance of operations and maintenance instructions needs to be improved. Missed Requirements At the time of launch, all items called for by the Operational Maintenance Requirements and Specifications document were to have been met, waived, or accepted. The 51L Audit Review has revealed additional areas where such requirements were not met and were not formally waived or accepted. 1. A formal post-flight inspection of the forward external tank attach plate was not documented. 2. A forward avionics bay closeout panel was not verified as installed during orbiter rollover stacking operations. The area was properly configured prior to flight with installation of a locker. 3. Flight 51L was launched with only one of two crew hatch microswitches showing the proper indication. This condition was documented by a problem report and was deferred. No waiver was obtained, however. 4. Post-flight hydraulic reservoir sampling was not performed prior to connection of ground hydraulic support equipment at Dryden Flight Research Facility but was performed in the Orbiter Processing Facility. 5. During Auxiliary Power Unit hypergolic loading operations, the number 2 tank evacuation prior to loading was not maintained above 20 inches of mercury for 5 minutes, as required. 19.8 inches maintained for 2 hours. This incident was documented as an acceptable condition by Kennedy, Johnson and Launch Support Service, but no waiver was submitted. 6. Landing gear voids were not replenished and crew module meters were not verified during final vehicle closeouts. The additional requirement to replenish the landing gear voids during launch countdown was performed. Inspection by proxy. Another aspect of the processing activities that warrants particular attention is the shuttle processing contractor's policy of using, quote, designated verifiers, end quote, to supplement the quality assurance force. A designated verifier is a senior technician who is authorized to expect and approve his own and his fellow technicians work in specific non-flight areas instead of NASA quality insurance personnel inspecting the work. The aviation industry follows this practice in performing verifications for the Federal Aviation Administration. The shuttle processing contractor has about 770 designated verifiers, nearly 15% of the workforce. The NASA Quality Assurance Inspection Program no longer covers 100% of the inspection areas. Due to reduced manpower, NASA personnel now inspect only areas that are considered more critical. Thus, the system of independent checks that NASA maintained through several programs is declining in effectiveness. The effect of this change requires careful evaluation by NASA. Accidental Damage Reporting While not specifically related to the Challenger accident, a serious problem was identified during interviews of technicians who work on the orbiter. It had been their understanding at one point that employees would not be disciplined for accidental damage done to the orbiter, provided the damage was fully reported when it occurred. It was their opinion that this forgiveness policy was no longer being followed by the shuttle processing contractor. They cited examples of employees being punished after acknowledging they had accidentally caused damage. The technician said that accidental damage is not consistently reported when it occurs because of lack of confidence in management's forgiveness policy and technicians' consequent fear of losing their jobs. This situation has obvious severe implications if left uncorrected. Launch Pad 39B All launch damage and launch measurement data from Pad B ground systems anomalies were considered to be normal or minor with three exceptions. The loss of the springs and plungers on the booster hold down posts, The failure of the gaseous hydrogen vent arm to latch and the loss of bricks from the flame trench. These three items are treated in Appendix One: the NASA pre-launch activities team report, May 1986. None contributed to the accident. Loss of bricks from the flame trench was also experienced during the launch of STS-1, April 1981, and STS-2, November 1981, from Pad A, though at locations closer to the center line of the vehicle. Since the brick was blown out of the flame trench and away from the vehicle, there is no evidence to indicate that the loose brick might have endangered the 51L vehicle, but it may be possible for damage to occur if the condition remains uncorrected. The Pad B fire brick is to be replaced by refractory concrete, as was done on Pad A. Involvement of Development Contractors The Space Shuttle program, like its predecessors Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, and Apollo-Soyuz, is clearly a developmental program and must be treated as such by NASA. Indeed, the chief differences between the shuttle and previous developmental programs are that the shuttle is principally a transportation system and employs reusable hardware. Reusability implies a new set of functions such as logistics support, maintenance, refurbishment, lifetime concerns, and structural inspections that must be addressed by the program. In order to enhance post-flight turnaround schedule and efficiency, NASA is striving to implement processing procedures accepted by the transportation industry. While this effort is useful, there is not an exact industry analogy to the orbiter vehicle's flight operations because each successive shuttle mission expands system and performance requirements. Consequently, The shuttle configuration is evolving as design changes and improvements are incorporated. The demands of individual payloads can cause significant additional developmental changes. These developmental aspects make significant demands which can be met only by the following strategies. 1. Maintain a significant engineering design and development capability among the Shuttle contractors and an ongoing engineering capability within NASA. 2. Maintain an active analytical capability so that the evolving capabilities of the Shuttle can be matched to the demands of the Shuttle. The Shuttle's developmental status demands that both NASA and all its contractors maintain a high level of in-house experience and technical ability, All shuttle contractors and their corresponding NASA project organizations expressed concern about the organization of contractor services. When shuttle operations were begun, the prime development contractors had total responsibility for all shuttle activities. The concept of a single shuttle processing prime contractor was adopted as NASA policy in 1981 and implemented in 1983 when a team led by Lockheed Space Operations was selected. The Lockheed team includes Lockheed Missiles and Space Company, responsible for processing the orbiter, Grumman Aerospace Corporation, responsible for operation and maintenance of the launch processing system, Pan American World Airways, charged with introducing and maintaining airline methods and techniques in the processing system, Morton Thiokol Inc., responsible for processing the solid rocket boosters and external tank, and Rocketdyne, responsible for processing the shuttle main engines. Lockheed's performance as shuttle processing contractor is judged on the basis of a NASA grading system using agreed criteria. In September 1984, the company was marked down for failure to form a coordinated contractor team. As a result of that grading, Lockheed earned for that period an award fee of about one-quarter of 1% of cost, on a maximum fee scale at that time of 1% of cost. Lockheed reviewed the findings of NASA's grading and did not quarrel with its major thrust. The award fee presently is a composite of incentives to be earned on mission success and cost control. It can vary along a scale of 1 to 14% of cost. The shuttle processing contractor was earning, at the time of the Challenger accident, about 6% of cost, or nearly midpoint on the scale. Although the performance of the shuttle processing contractor's team has improved considerably, serious processing problems have occurred, especially with respect to the orbiter. An example is provided by the handling of the critical 17-inch disconnect valves during the 51L flight preparations. During external tank propellant loading in preparation for launch the liquid hydrogen 17-inch disconnect valve was opened prior to reducing the pressure in the orbiter liquid hydrogen manifold through a procedural error by the console operator. The valve was opened with a 6 pounds per square inch differential. This was contrary to the critical requirement that the differential be no greater than one pound per square inch. This pressure held the valve closed for approximately 18 seconds before it finally slammed open abruptly. These valves are extremely critical and have very stringent tolerances to preclude inadvertent closure of the valve during main stage thrusting. Accidental closing off a disconnect valve would mean catastrophic loss of orbiter and crew. The slamming of this valve, which could have damaged it, was not reported by the operator, and was not discovered until the post-accident data review. Although this incident did not contribute to the 51L incident, this type of error cannot be tolerated in future operations, and a policy of rigorous reporting of anomalies in processing must be strictly enforced. During the pre-launch processing and post-flight refurbishment of the orbiter, Rockwell, the development contractor, acts largely as an advisor to the shuttle processing contractor. Martin Marietta has a similar role regarding the pre-launch processing of the external tank. In contrast, NASA directed the shuttle processing contractor to subcontract with Rocketdyne and Thiokol for the processing and refurbishment of the main engines and the solid rocket motors, respectively. If Rockwell and Martin Marietta... As the development contractor had a similar direct involvement with their elements of the shuttle system, the likelihood of difficulties caused by improper processing would probably be decreased. Furthermore, all shuttle elements would benefit from the advantages of beginning-to-end responsibility vested in individual contractors, each responsible for the design, development, manufacturing, operation, and refurbishment of their respective shuttle elements. End of section 21. Recording by John Michael, Sussex, Wisconsin, USA. January 2021.